Hey, hey, it's Vadim. And first of all, good morning. And I hope you had a nice weekend. That is, if you're listening to this on a Monday morning, I feel like I don't say that enough to you guys. We have a lot of good stuff in the works. We're talking to a lot of potential guests. I'm not going to get into details, but I think these these guests will have a lot of uh, really valuable information for our listeners. So I'm very excited about that. Also, this long-promised episode on dialing in heavy guitar tone, that is getting close. That should be one of the next few episodes that's released. So if you're a guitar player working on heavy stuff, look for that. I'm going to talk about the Fredman Mikey technique, which I recently used, and I really liked it. I think it is going to become one of my go-to techniques. So I'll, um, I did a bunch of different setups with it, I'm trying just little small microphone adjustments, writing down the settings and everything I did, and I'll share those samples with you. So that should be a very fun episode. Also, almost done with this freaking website. I need a podcast on DIY WordPress-ing because I'm really uh, bad at web design. It's it's really interesting, actually. It's kind of like a creative process. In a sense, it's it's almost like working on music is at some point you just have to just let it go and stop being a perfectionist and, and get it out there. So I just have to get this thing across the, the finish line. It's going to give people uh, a great way to search episodes by tags and keywords. It's also going to be little blog posts for each episode and, um, you know, a way to get in contact with us and leave comments and all kinds of good stuff. So that's coming down the road very, very shortly, I hope. Today we have a guest. We have Joe Golden with us from Westmoreland String Workshop. Joe's primary occupation is uh, as a repair technician for stringed instruments. And we, we wanted to invite somebody with that specialty on to talk about things like instrument maintenance, specifically as it relates to stringed instruments, and how to prepare your instrument for recording sessions and, and just in general how to take care of it. We get into a lot of interesting topics here with Joe. He's you could, You'll hear he's very passionate about what he does. We talk about why you should have a new appreciation for your instruments. Uh, Joe has opened up my eyes a little bit towards what owning an instrument really means. And if you're, uh, if you're a musician, you'll appreciate his take on this. We talk about why upgrading components may be a better option than purchasing new, and that kind of ties into the, the first bullet point there. We talk about what to look for in a used instrument. If you're buying a used instrument, this is something I've always wondered about. You know, how safe is it to buy an instrument off a of Craigslist? And what should you be looking for? And so on. We talk about why humidity is so important uh, and why too little humidity is actually worse than too much. We also talk about how humidity can actually affect the tone of an acoustic instrument, which was a bit of a surprise to me. We talk about a hack for how to save some money on strings and fret repairs. We talk about what a truss rod is and why you shouldn't be afraid of it. Uh, We talk about a common mistake that people make when changing their strings and when winding their strings. And this uh, this is pretty important. And much more. Joe is also a musician. He studied classical guitar at Duquesne University. He plays the guitar, the banjo, and the fiddle. 
He's based out of the greater Pittsburgh area. You'll find links to him in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, so um, yeah, we have a guest today that we're very excited to bring to you guys. So this guest goes way back with me, back to whenever I was playing in my first professional band. I went to this person uh, to learn how to and have them set up my bass guitar to go into the recording studio. And they did a great job, taught me a lot of things that I didn't even know about playing bass or setting up a guitar slash bass. So we're going to dive into that and a whole bunch more on this episode. So without further ado, I'd like to invite the golden child himself, Joe Golden, onto the podcast. Thank you, Joe. Well, thank you guys for having me on to this evening. And thank you, Ben, for that glorious intro. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's an honor to sit with you guys and talk about all things that are near and dear to me. Let's talk about your background a little bit. So uh, how, how did you develop an interest for playing music? Uh, what instruments do you play, etc.? Well, I, for me, music came sort of a, at an early stage. Um, it was a, a family-driven thing, sort of the extended family. Cousins were all musicians and very talented. They still are very talented guitar players and uh, so it was like a friendly competition, I think. It was the, the ingredients of listening to really heavy, you know, guitar-driven music, plus, you know, like the friendly competitiveness of like learning a lick. And, you know, you put all these ingredients together and hmm. it's sort of like how we, we started, you know, and we, we would get together regularly and sort of push each other to, you know, play different things and try different things. And someone would learn like a blues lick and we'd all freak out and, you know, have to learn <laughs> that. So uh, that was really how it started for me. It was like a family thing, you know, so we spent a lot of time together. So, you know, in the instruments that I played back then were mostly just, you know, guitar, um, okay. you know, and, and at that time, I got really into, um, soon after learning the guitar, I got into classical guitar, which is sort of like a whole different type of guitar playing. And, I, you know, I remember hearing John Williams for the first time and just being completely blown away by that much sound coming out of a guitar, you know. Mm. So um, that had a huge influence on me because my cousin was also really getting into classical guitar. And it was like... You know, I understood it to be such a, you know, you know, difficult genre of music to play. And that challenge was, you know, something that I, that really kind of drove me in that direction. Um, today, I play guitar. Um, I play banjo. Banjo is a, you know, that's a loose term. There's a lot of different styles of banjo. There's old time banjo. There's bluegrass banjo. There's classic banjo. So I, I play mostly old time and, and some bluegrass stuff. Um, you know, they, some mm. people call that scrug style. 
Um, so, and then fiddle is mostly what, what I would call all time fiddling. It's, it's, it's not, it's very different than bluegrass in the sense of the tunings are different. The songs are crooked, meaning that, you know, the timing's really funky. It's like a blend of like blues and bluegrass and country. It's, you know, sort of like roots music rolled in one. And that to me is, is such a drive, you know, that's, that that probably encompasses the things that I listen to the most is is Americana music, mm. roots, you know, blues, country, bluegrass, old time, kind of rolled up in the one. So, um, you know, those are those are sort of like how it got started for me and and what I play now. So I'm I'm assuming for this whole big family, you are now the go to guy for any kind of instrument work, instrument repairs, advice for upgrades. Is that true? It's true because, you know, I, I, it's almost like, um, it's almost like I'm a dinosaur in some ways, like this <laughs> extinct, there's not a lot of guys that are doing this. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I look at it as I'm just, you know, I'm just one point of an instrument's journey. And it's, you know, really my responsibility to sort of help that instrument along because it's going to outlast me. It's going to outlast its owner um, if it's done right. And so I don't want to I don't want to fix something or try to fix something and really make it um, difficult for the next guy. You know, I want to use the right glues. I want to use the right materials. I want to know what I'm doing. I don't want to experiment on some someone's instrument, you know, and that mm-hmm. that takes a you know, that takes a long time to feel, you know, and I, 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 every day I'm learning something and every day I feel like, you know, I could do, I've done it better. Um, you know, so that's, that's the challenge of all of this. That's a beautiful thought, Joe, that, you know, the instrument, a, a well cared for instrument is going to mm-hmm. outlive you and its owner. I really, I've never thought about it that way, but it really is a beautiful thought. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think we all have a responsibility. I mean, I, I know, you know, we're five minutes in, I think I'm already off topic, but, you know, we, we, we all have a responsibility. I mean, the resources that we have, you know, Ebony's and, um, and all of the, even the maple that we're using, you know, it's very, it's endangered, mm. you know, and so we have such a responsibility as musicians, like people come in and they complain to me about Martin not using ebony, they have this composite stuff. And, and I think to myself, like, you know, Martin, had, their hands are tied, you know, they, they don't have access, you know, back in the 50s, there was harmonies and K's and all of these guitars that used the best of the best woods, best spruces, the best best Brazilian rosewood, the best ebony's, um, and people think of those guitars as junk guitars. And so, I've been very passionate about converting those guitars. And I just sold one today, my second one, and um, they make incredible instruments. And so, it's it's giving those instruments um, a new lease on life. Mm. But you know, we we have to think that way because you know we're not going to have the maples we're not going to have the rosewoods we're not going to have the ebony's um ebony's you know we're that's going you know fast and fast even our pearl inlay work is you know pearl is being gone you know so it's it's scary um it's really scary so i've been trying to you know let musicians know that you know the things that are junky that they consider junky or um are actually made out of woods that are you know, incredible. So it's, to me, it's like a responsibility. That's really cool. Yeah. 
I, I love the idea of, you know, you're educating maybe your clients or people that come and ask you questions about, uh, or they might not even know, you know, what a good instrument is or what components of an instrument make it good or what can make it bad. Because I know in my head, I think if there's something that's composite, that's low quality versus if I have a solid piece of wood, this is high quality. So maybe talk about that a little bit. That's an excellent point. And I get it because oftentimes composite means something that's um, a lesser quality. Um, but the reality is that we, we are going to have to consider those if we're not responsible. Like look at violinists. Pernabuca is a wood that is used to make bows. Um, in cello base it's one of the best strongest woods it's going away the brazilian rainforest is just getting consumed so there's a lot of um, pernambuco bows that come in that can be recambered or re-straightened um that can be you know re-tipped or re-gripped or rewound and and done to make a beautiful bow um that is you know 30 times better than a composite bow um, so that to me, like that's where my passion is mm. right now. Musicians are like, man, I, there, there's this Martin that has composite fingerboard. I just want ebony, and yeah, you want ebony, but it's very difficult to, to get ebony. And I and I have a real fear that we're we're going to hit a point where it's going to be like tortoiseshell, or it's going to be like whalebone, where you know those materials are considered unethical and for very for good reasons. Right. It's concerning to me. I mean, I'm not trying to bring down the podcast, but it's also something that, you know, we have to be aware of it. As musicians, we have an obligation not only to ourselves, but there's there's a next generations of musicians that have they should have the the right to play on instruments of quality. Yeah. And so we have to be responsible. I think people our age People any age probably are a bit spoiled on this end because we're we're used to being able to just look up a guitar we want and it seems like there's an unlimited supply of guitars out there. But I'm reminded of actually there was a what was that movie they remade? Blade Runner. The 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 Blade Runner they just remade recently, where there's that scene where he just has like a little wood carving and it's really valuable. And we do have to appreciate the fact that these instruments are made from really I mean, it is a renewable resource, but it's an endangered resource that maybe is, is being consumed faster than it's able to be renewed. So it does make me kind of, I'm looking at my guitars out of the corner of my eye here and uh, yeah. kind of looking at them with a new appreciation. <laughs> Care for your instruments, I guess, is, uh, <laughs> is, is our first takeaway. I agree with you, you know, and, and repair is, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's, it's really... I'm just one step in in this instrument um, journey. You know, there's I'll work on um, violins like I have. You know, worked on violins from the early 1600s. You know, it's wow. um, that instrument if 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 it's cared for will just outlast us all. <laughs> you know, it'll just keep on going. And you think about where that instrument played. You know, it's it's kind of. It kind of is a little overwhelming. You yeah. Know? yeah, that's but. very cool. Because before we dive in too far, just the term luthier, is that, does that apply to you or does that only apply to somebody who's making instruments from scratch? Or do you make instruments from scratch? I guess we didn't ask you that yet. Okay, yeah. It, you know, that 
you know, I guess that term that, you know, I have such respect for that word, <laughs> you know, that I, I think about that and it's really a maker, you okay. know, it's a maker of stringed instruments. And so for me, um, you know, I, I really think mm. of myself as a repair person or a repair tech, okay. you know, I, I, I think of myself as somebody that, you know, on the repair end, not so much on the building end. I have built instruments, um, you know, but not not something that, you know, a, a builder does and repeats that same process and they really hone in and they they have skills that, um, you know, that they develop in the building process and the repair aspect. It's it's really different because every repair is different. And so, you know, you're not repeating the same. You're not waking up and repeating the same thing. Um, and I'm not taking away from a builder because that is a, that's a craft all to itself. But um, it's something that every time, every repair, every instrument that comes in, it needs something different. So right. that is that that's the challenge. And and some of the builders that I talk to, you know, are that's the very reason why they got out of repair is that you know they were just like you know that that you know every day being different and and just working through different repairs was you know. Um, mm. was the, was challenging. <laughs> they wanted to get into sort of not having to fix things all the time. Right. But I, I think some of the best builders started out as repairmen. You know, people say, you know, what what do you judge uh, as a you know when you look at an instrument? I look at the fret work. You know, I you know the fret frets are you know people are like oh you just pound frets in but <laughs> there's the finish work the finish work is really is a challenge and so oftentimes I'll see you know handcrafted instruments that have horrible fret jobs mm. or or the nut you know the bone nut is cut horribly you know and so. I, you know, you think to, you know, but they don't do, you know, they don't, that's not something, they're not building an instrument a day to refret it. So, you know, they're, you know, the refrets and, and all of the um, nuts and saddles and everything that, you know, you sort of is the bread and butter of a repair shop is not something a builder is doing um, as much. So there's advantages from coming from, uh, the repair world and I, I see myself going in the building direction mm. um and this year was i came really close i retopped some guitars um i got a hold of some really you know drove down to maryland and you know got a hold of some really good red spruce and um in in you know retopped some old martins that had been destroyed um, and that, that's, that's a process, you know, taking off tops and, and revoicing the guitars. Um, probably this year marks the most challenging repair that has, I've ever done. And that's taking a, a 1932, um, C2 Martin, which is an archtop guitar. And that guitar got converted into a flat top guitar. So if you think about, you know, the neck angle of how steep it is for an archtop guitar, you know, so you have to re-graft the neck, but he, the, you know, the client wanted the original neck. So <laughs> it's just, it's a lot of math and trying to figure <laughs> out the string tension and how much pull and that, you know, I, I, um, I laid awake at night <laughs> just thinking about that repair. Wow. Um, and, you know, I actually talked to him tonight. Um, he called me and, um, when, when his number 
comes up, I get a little bit, you know, I get a little bit concerned. I'm like, oh, no. But <laughs> he loves the guitar. He plays it every day. And so that's what it, that's what matters. That's awesome. I think one thing that jumps out into my mind, and, and you kind of did this with the one blue four-string bass that I brought to you a long time ago, uh, repurposing these old instruments that maybe the owners don't think have any life left in them. And I remember for mine in particular, you put whole new electronics into it, uh, redid the nuts because the nut was just a stupid plastic nut that broke, um, redid that, redid the tuners. So I guess in thinking and talking about that, um, when is when is a good time to think about maybe I should get a new instrument versus can I repurpose my instrument or can you even repurpose any instrument that you have? That bass example was perfect. You know, that particular instrument meant something to you. You were like, man, I really love how this thing mm -hmm. plays. And that's, that's all I needed. You know, it doesn't <laughs> matter what it says on the headstock. It's like you had a connection to that instrument. And that's really, um, that's really what this is all about. I think that there's there's definitely room for refurbishing or revamping. Um, there's a lot of like aftermarket pickups, like Fraylin. I think is doing some great stuff. There's there's a ton of them. You could throw those into guitars and make you you know make an Epiphone roar. You know you can really do a lot of different things with um, if you have a connection with the guitar. I've had Epiphone acoustics that, you know, were $150 on Craigslist that sound amazing, hmm. you know. So I, I think, you know, if they go into a guitar center and say, well, if I spend, you know, $2,500, I'm going to get the best thing. It, it they, they might get something that sounds really incredible. But I mean, the whole process of this is to play an instrument that makes you want to play, right. that does something to you that you're like, man this is this is a really cool instrument and so that's that's the journey that we're all on is the is to make the connections with instruments that's a great answer joe yeah you you brought up craigslist so i <laughs> <laughs> it's actually i had that in my notes so inevitably once a month i'll just start looking around for who's unloading guitars in my in my vicinity <laughs> And this is, you know, there's always a concern with, it's just like, you know, used cars or whatever. Like how well did the previous owners maintain this instrument? So for people who are on, in the market, maybe they're considering a used instrument. What are some things you would look for when you first pick up a guitar? You already mentioned fretwork. Like what are some other things maybe that you look for to evaluate how well it was maintained and what kind of life or performance you can expect out of it? Absolutely. Yeah. I, and, and I'm looking on Craigslist too. Like, you know, there's, <laughs> I think you can do really well on Facebook marketplace mm. or, or, um, Craigslist, you know, much rather see them do that than to buy, you know, something that's brand new on eBay that, you know, in about a month is just going to completely fall apart you know and i get i get that a lot with like violins hmm. you know there's there's like this little jam with violins where you get like a 40 dollar violin and you know you pay 20 dollars in shipping so for 60 bucks you get this brand new instrument that's basically made out of like balsa wood <laughs> um and it has a lifespan of like a month and a half before the whole thing just goes but the things to look for is is you know, it's just really playability. You know, I, I think we both know 
if you're picking up a guitar and you're like, man, the action is really high, mm -hmm. that's a concern. You know, like there's a ballpark and and I think every guitar player should know sort of what the 12 fret should kind of look like. Guitar players can see 64ths of an inch. They can <laughs> understand. If I lower or raise, you know, guitar players can see that. They're like, wow, this is lower. And I'm like, wow, I lowered it by a 64th of an inch. <laughs> and, and But they can see that. It sounds crazy, but our eyes are trained for that. So, you know, for somebody that doesn't have that eye training yet and doesn't understand on an acoustic guitar, when you're getting above 664th from the bottom of the fret, uh, or the top of the 12th fret mm -hmm. to the bottom of the string, if, you're, if, if your guitar is above 664ths of an inch. That's high. There's things that are going on with that. There's things to look at with an acoustic, a used acoustic versus, um, you know, a, versus an electric guitar. If I was buying an acoustic guitar, I would look at what it, I'd find the 12th fret and I'd try to understand the distance there. If it's really high, then I, you know, I would look at the saddle. So there's two areas. I'd look at the saddle and if there's, that's the white part that comes out of the bridge. Mm. And so if there's not that much saddle sitting there, I would hand the guitar back to the person and say, thank you for, you know, um, you know, but I'm going to keep on looking because those, if you don't have that much saddle back there, then you can't lower it. You're really kind of looking at the 12th fret and understanding that distance and then taking your eye and looking at that saddle and seeing how much of that saddle is sticking out of the bridge. Mm. Those are really two concerning areas because you can replace tuners you can replace right. um obviously strings um if it's an acoustic guitar you know spin the guitar so you're looking down at the back of the bridge is the bridge lifting up you know because that happens a lot with acoustics mm -hmm. so you know, there's there's a couple checkpoints. I don't worry about tuners. I don't worry about necessarily frets. You know, I really look at things that are, are, are structural. Okay. With electrics, I really just look at the, you know, the overall playability of the guitar. And, and um, again, looking at the measurement, it should be lower than 464 or 664. It should be about 464 um, at the 12th fret. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom of that fret to the, uh, you know, the top of the fret to the bottom of the string. So that gap. Now, electric guitars have a lot more adjustability to them. So um, that's a little bit different. So um, it's a little easier in that regards. Acoustics, you know, you, you can't, you know, there's a saying you can't, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. You can't just... Um, you can't just lower the action without affecting other areas. Right. With electric, you can kind of do that because um, mm -hmm. it's a hunk of wood that's sitting on a, another big hunk of wood. Mm -hmm. So um, acoustics are a, a lot more, there's a lot more, um, you know, areas of concern, I should say. Are there are there signs of, um, I, I know humidity is always a concern or, or insufficient humidity is there anything that is a telltale sign of like a guitar was stored in too dry of an environment or something like that? Absolutely. And, and you probably hit on one area that 
if if I had a soapbox, I would be standing on it because <laughs> I. Use your soapbox, man. Stand on it. I preach humidity almost like a religion. <laughs> it's so important in that it, musicians are completely um, in the dark when it comes to humidity. And so it's a subject near and dear to me. The first thing that I would say is buy some sort of meter that's going to read humidity. You can buy them on Amazon. They're like $15. Um, just really get an idea of how much humidity it, you have your instruments in. Um, so really, in the summertime, you don't, you don't want your instrument to swell. Um, that's when your action gets higher. Uh, you know, for an acoustic guitar, your action will get higher. Things will get kind of funky um, in the sense of playability. It, to have too much water or have a wet instrument is what they say is is a, is it's much better than it's not great, but it's much better than to have a completely dry mm. instrument. So a completely dry instrument is on an acoustic guitar your bridge starts to drop. Um, so if you think about it, the spruce, which is really 90% of guitar tops, that spruce drops down because it's shrinking, it's dry. And so what's happening there is that your ebony bridge, let's say you have an ebony bridge or a rosewood bridge, it's not gonna be able to drop or sink down. So it's gonna pop. It's gonna be like parachute, it'll pop. So. It, but what will happen in an extreme case is I had a, a, um, I had a lady that came to me from Pittsburgh and she said, I think I dropped my guitar. And I was like, I, I didn't understand. I was like, how, how, what do you mean you think you dropped your guitar? And she's like, there's a huge crack in my guitar. And I looked at the guitar and I said, you didn't drop your guitar. Your, your guitar is so dry that the top can't, it, it can only dip so far. And then it just, it starts to split mm -hmm. open. And she was like, oh, thank goodness. I thought I did something to my guitar. And I was you like, did. oh, you did something. <laughs> you did. You absolutely did. You you set your guitar next to, you, you know, the heat source in your apartment and just cooked, you know, just cooked it. Um, so an acoustic guitar is, you know, it, or a mandolin or a violin, um, anything that is sort of has an arch top or has a, a thin spruce top, um, a hollow bodied instrument, you know, it's, it's not going to the, the spruce or whatever top, you know, we're talking about a very thin top. So it's going to split. So 70 degrees and 50% humidity is like ideal. So if, if no one remembers anything about this conversation, understand what that those numbers are. Having um, a shop that's in my house and I'm able to really control that mm. um, is, a, is a luxury because that, that's really concerning to me. I won't work on an instrument without the humidity being right. right. Sure. Um, and I've, I've worked for Taylor Guitar um, as, a, as a Taylor Surface mm. tech for them. And they're very adamant about me. You know, they'll, you know, I'll take pictures of a repair and they'll say, you know, make sure your gauges are reading at a certain temp before you, you know, do that type of work. And, and, and I understand that. And I appreciate them understanding humidity. Joe, I want to I ask you about, you know, I... You, you mentioned temperature, you mentioned that 70 degree number. Cause I, I know like in, in my studio, yes, in the summer I have, Ben and I talked about this on a, on a previous episode, I think studio problems you can solve for 
under $50. We talked about humidity sensors, and I do have a, a dehumidifier and AC. But in the winter, when I'm actually adding humidity into the air, I think my temperature is still significantly lower. So if I'm if you if you maintain the humidity level at around that 50% number, is it okay to have lower temperature or is temperature still as an important factor? No, temperature is it, it's an important factor, but you can deviate. It's more important to have the humidity okay. um, numbers right. And it's awesome that you're thinking about humidity because if you're going into a studio, you know, there it was explained to me that some of our greatest um, classical violinists would never record in the wintertime because they hated how mm. t small their violins, they would say it sounds small. Huh, um, wow. it, that's because there's no moisture in it. So as recording process, you know, if you're, if you're saying, man, I recorded that last year and it sounded so much better. Well, like what's, you know, the, your instrument is going to react to the environment. So studios that are having that are super dry are not even thinking about, you know, they're thinking about, um, you know, technology stuff, which I totally understand. They're missing the really the big part of this is that musicians are going to come in and be like, man, my instrument doesn't hmm. feel like it, you know, wow. and it's because of that. It's it's the that very reason my my fiddle sounds totally different when it's dry. Um, it sounds really tinny. Um, it's not very inspiring, and that's really the last thing that you want to have happen in a studio is to not to feel inspired by your or or to hear the sound that you're used to hearing. So that's super critical. The humidity is like I said, I preach that all the time. Super important. Cool. Yeah, so let's let's talk about um, maybe some of the different types of basic things you can do to keep your instrument, whether that's acoustic or an electric, uh, in tip-top shape. I think the very first thing that you know, if you're if you're going on Amazon or or going to Walmart to buy a meter, buy some microfiber little towels. Mm. Um, and and here's the thing: you you can get you know. You can save on frets. You you know you can save on strings. Um, just overall wiping down. You know your hands have so much dirt and acid. You know and crud and th that you know that gets into your strings. So you know if you're playing a gig, um, take those microfibers. Or if you're you're practicing at home, have just a microfiber sitting there and wiping it down. The other thing, too, is that, you know, I have a lot of guitar players, and I'm just going to talk about guitar players that are super <laughs> scared of truss rods. Like, you say the word truss, you know, you say those words, yeah. and they're like, oh, my God, I'll never touch that. You know, that's not something to fear. Uh, that And I get Wait, it. Joe, like, Joe before, you, before you get into that, maybe just, just quickly for people who may not be aware, or, or for the drummers that listen, what's a truss rod? What is it doing? Well, there's different types of truss rods, but the premise or the idea of the truss rod is it's like a neck support system. So it's a rod that runs underneath your fingerboard. And so it's it's been routed in. Um, so it sits in the adjustment for a truss rod is either in the headstock or it's in the sound hole. 
mm. on a, on on some acoustics. Um, so the truss rod is really just it's counter it's counter um, pull on the neck. So you your your neck of your guitar. Let's say I'm using guitar for an example here has hundreds of pounds of pressure on it. So it's pulling, and so the truss rod is there to help kind of support the neck, so it doesn't just bow or bend underneath that string tension. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a super important part of the guitar that's sort of hidden. So you can adjust that. You can turn the rod to help kind of bring, um, you know, the, the, the concaveness out of your fingerboard. So if you have your fingerboard laying flat and it has like sort of like this concave look to it, then you can kind of help straighten out the neck. It's sort of like if you walked around with your your shoulders hunched over <laughs> um, and then you kind of straighten your back out. Um, that's healthy. If you're taking half turns or full turns on the truss rod, that's too much. You're not going to, the guitar's not going to explode, but at the same time, you're trying to solve a problem in, in, in a way that's the, the truss rod is not the job. Like if your action is really high, it's not the truss rod's job to make the action super playable. If you just say, well, I'm just going to crank on the truss rod, that's not the job of the truss rod. It's, it's sort of there to help those adjustments, but it's not meant to make these major, and that's where people get into trouble, but don't fear the truss rod. <laughs> that's a good t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But people always say to me, well, I'm not touching the truss rod. And I'm like, uh, you're going to yeah. drive an hour to come and see me where it's going to take you five minutes. Like we can talk, we can talk you through this, man. It's like lefty, loosey, righty, tidy, man. Just turn that thing. They beat you know? that into guitarists, I think. Cause I, I was afraid of that for years as well until I finally had that realization. It's like, oh, this isn't, I can handle this. I, I generally, yes. generally I don't do any repairs because I don't like to work on anything that doesn't have an undo button, but <laughs> but trust rod I can handle. So so how is that something that you're checking like like on my guitars I typically check it every time I change the strings. How how often do you recommend people check their what their trust rod is doing? Let's say you're at home and you have absolutely no tools. Um, there's something very easy that you can do, and that is to take you know your index finger on your left hand and pin the first fret of your guitar on the bass string. So that, that would be an F note um, on your bass E. So pin it there, and then with your pinky of your right hand, you kind of pin it at your last fret, and then take on your right hand. So you're, you're sort of pinning it um, at the very lowest note and the very highest note on the bass string of your E. And then just take a, take your index finger of your right hand and just tap on the string. That's a straight line. So you got to have a little bit of tap um, because if you don't have any tap, that means that your neck is too straight or perhaps convex, meaning it's bowed or back bowed. Um, and you don't want that because that that's um, not healthy for the neck. So that's a really, and that can be done when you're going to check out a new guitar or a new to you guitar. That's a really good gauge um, for someone that has no tools and wants to understand how where their truss rod is. Uh, let's just say you're at home and you're gauging whether or not you're guitar might need a repair or need any adjustments. So we did that tap test and we see, okay, the straightness of the neck seems to be in good shape. 
but maybe you're still having some issues, how would you go and evaluate um, maybe bridge saddle height or other things like string length? Yeah, so what I would look for is I would look, you know, places of contact um, with the string. So I would look at um, where the string comes out of the bridge. So the string comes out of the bridge and travels up the neck um, or down the neck, however you want to think of it, to the nut. So those two points of contact are super important. Um, the string hits the nut and goes towards the tuner. And, and really, the, the number one mistake that I see um, guitar players or bass players make or mandolin players um, make is that they wind their strings incorrectly. Um, and so that, that invites all kinds of um, problems to the instrument. So understanding that when you're, when you're, when you're winding a string that the string winding or the tail end of the string should always be wrapped so it's it's down low. Um, so you're wrapping down the post. Mm, mm. Um, I see guys finish their wrap and they have the tail on the top. If you imagine the string being a straight line, mm -hmm. on each end of that, it should be an angle down. Okay, you know, because the angle down is sort of like that's the um that's the the, the sort of the the fuel to get that string to really do what that string's meant to do, and that's to vibrate, you know, to go back and forth. You want to create downward pressure to kind of put pin it, pin it at the nut, print, pin it at the saddle, and really get that string to kind of move. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Right, but you're you're saying you're winding around the peg is kind of from the top. The first winding is higher than the last winding. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up because that seems like such a simple thing, but if you overlook that, you, you can introduce fret buzz so easily and you might think that it's a trust rod thing or a, a bridge thing. There could be intonation issues. There could be um, tuning issues. There, there's all kinds of things. If you know, um, I just played with um, two musicians um, last weekend and um, the one mandolin player who's good, mandolin i just refretted he said oh you'll be so proud of me look how i did my strings because we we've had this conversation and i looked at his mandolin and i was like there it's all wrong man. you have the you, he's like That's you hilarious. know so he got he got string winding 101 again so um he texted me he texted me a picture of his mandolin um and i was like the other day and i was like there you got it so, so staying on string changing for a second, what are like, what's the bulleted list of items that you do, you should be doing every time you change your strings? If you had some triple aught or some um, four, I, I think this is four aught steel wool, you know, having the finest steel wool just to kind of like, you know, kind of get all that tarnish off the frets. Yeah. So this, this is, I, I always see like this and I always wonder about it. So I'm glad you brought this up. Is it okay to use like triple aught steel wool indiscriminately across your neck, like frets, fretboard and all? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If you have ebony or rosewood. Okay. Um, you're not going to do that on a Telecaster or a base that has a maple cap neck. Um, that's, that's, not, that's not how that's handled. You're kind of kissing down the tops of the frets to kind of... Um, 
just to get all that gunk and stuff. And then if you have something to wipe it down with, um, like I said, like a cut linseed oil, if you're cutting that back a little bit, though, that's really super important for like ebony and rosewood, especially in the winter time where the, it can get dry. The other thing that I see a lot too is like tuners that have um, like a top nut to them, super loose, you know, so making sure that when you're string changing, just making sure that those uh, are tight, okay. you know, and as far as wiping down your guitar, it, it depends on what finish you have. There's a lot of different guitars that make like Nomad I mentioned, they make a lot of good sprays that are um, that are really fine for that. If you have a question about that, you know, those products, Nomad makes some really good stuff that's pretty cheap. Mm. Um, you know, but satin finishes and gloss, high gloss finishes, you know, oftentimes they will take different type of cleaners to help them out. As far as standard maintenance versus maybe more intense maintenance, are there certain things that jump out to you that you should do this? And I think you talked about this a little, little bit with like wiping down your guitar every time you play. But are there some things that you should be doing on a daily, weekly, monthly, or yearly basis with your instruments? Most of the repairs that I see as far as electric guitars, um, you know, are just basically set up stuff, um, you know, or stands getting knocked over um, at gigs um, and breaking headstocks off. Uh. I mean, I have that. I have that repair in my shop. You know, in the summertime, I that's a repair that I'll have. Um, probably four times a month uh you know so it's i'm I'm not seeing it so much because there's not so much live music going on but i i don't use a stand when i take when i'm playing a gig i just Mm. i set the guitar back in its case um i it's just i don't i don't roll the dice i used to use a stand um but you know I, I, I've seen way too many repairs. It's either the wind or something, or, or the story starts like this. The, I, there was a mic cable, and my guitar <laughs> stand got caught in the mic cable, and the dude pulled the mic stand or the mic cable, and my guitar went flying. And I'm like, yeah, I, I hear that story a good bit. Oftentimes, what I get with like tremolo guitars, like Fenders, Fender will send nines out, um, nine to 42 set of strings. Um, on their electrics and and it'll be a tremolo guitar and the player will be like well i put tens on the guitar and all of a sudden i you know the trade plays horrible and the action's really high and it's you know when you have a tremolo guitar that's a different type of setup so if you're going to play tens um on the guitar and you don't want to pay for a setup you know tell guitar center or wherever say hey i'm playing this guitar with tens on it and they should be able to do the swap there and be able to do all those adjustments you know if you have a super tight neck or super straight neck and you go from 11s to 9s you're going to need to adjust that truss rod because your guitar is used to having a lot more pull to it and all of a sudden so it'll back bow at that time Stop tell piece block guitars, they're not as finicky as a tremolo guitar or a Floyd Rose. Uh, Floyd Rose, that's you, you need a whole new podcast for that. <laughs> you know, that's like working on a VW engine. Yeah, you know, there's like a thousand moving parts. I got rid of all my Floyd Rose guitars. So, you just, oh, did you? Yeah, I did, but I mean, that was more just because I realized I 
I didn't need it. When I listened to a lot of Steve Vai albums back in the 90s, I thought for sure I would want every guitar ever to have a Floyd Rose, and that turned out <laughs> to be not the case. But anyway, so, so you mentioned you know changing gauges, you may want to consider a setup. What about just changing tunings? If I'm like, let's say I'm getting ready to record a song, my guitar is just in standard tuning, but I want to do something, let's say if a whole step down, something like that, uh, what do I want to con- consider there? Does, should that be a setup as well? Or should I change gauges at that point for like a whole step down? It's if it, depending on how tight you have the truss rod, if you have the t- truss rod really tight and you play with a super straight neck and you're dropping the tuning, you, you may get like, um, you might get some buzzing in the first open to first three frets. Um, so it's sort of like a balance there. But if I if I had a client that was saying, you know, hey, I'm thinking about taking this guitar mid-set, um, I would probably advise them to, you know, think about taking another guitar that's sort of set up in that way. Oftentimes when you're taking electric that has a stop tail piece, your chances of things going okay are much better than if you have a, if you have a tremolo sense. guitar, I'd say no, because it's a, it's like a seesaw. You're balancing the string tension with your tremolo spring. So you're, you're sort of trying to get the guitar to be in balance and it takes a little bit of time and effort to get that balance right. And as soon as you loosen something, your tremolo block is going to go right down. Um, you know, right. so things are going to get re- your action is going to drop, and you're you're going to have all kind of issues. On those um, the the bridges like the Strat style, where you know it's not quite a Floyd Rose, where it's like balanced on a on a on a single point. Are they intended to be resting on the body of the guitar in one direction? So basically, you can only use them to detune, or are they intended to be still be floating? where you can move them in both directions? You know what? It's a great question. I always think about, you know, parallel with the body. Like if you're looking at the body, sort of like taking your eyes and sort of going down to the level and sort of sighting it to be eye level with you, sort of like that tremolo um, being parallel with the body. Now, when Fender sends out... um, their trim guitars they actually have it kind of ramped up so you can kind of they actually in certain in, in, in i was taught to call that floating you know so they actually float that bridge a little bit okay. hmm. there's no there's no hard fast rule there there's you know what they prefer okay. there was a time there too that i was blocking a lot of tremolos putting a hard piece of maple in there to block the trim mm. and that's another option you know it gives you a little bit more sustain you don't have tuning issues you don't there's a lot of things a lot of factors you take out when you when you block a trim gotcha and going back to your uh just talking about maybe having the option of having two guitars versus one guitar you're making me think back to maybe some of my earlier years where i would normally play in let's say a drop d tuning or a standard and all of a sudden uh maybe i had the inspiration to play something more like corn and i wanted to drop my guitar down to you know drop drop a or whatever they're playing in and drop z yeah you you <laughs> drop your guitar the whole way down there and then you play and it's fine and then you try to take it back and two hours later you're still trying to get it in tune because nothing's sitting right anymore yeah. so yeah i totally agree with what you're saying and you spiked out you know having multiple instruments for different tunings for a live performance i think you know we could say the same thing applies for recording if you're getting ready to go into a recording session to do 
an album or an EP or something like that and you have multiple tunings, that could be a consideration as well because you're going to want new strings and you're going to want a well-set-up instrument. Uh, maybe talking a little bit about, you know, Ben had notes on here about more complex customizations. And I'm going to ask you just my own. Are you good on time, by the way, Joe? I don't want to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm good on time. How about you, Ben? Yeah, I'm good. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, this is something I keep going back and forth on. I have this guitar that I like a lot that pretty much has, it was just one of these, it's, it's a production model Schecter that I just really love. And it's all stock right now. And I keep flirting with the idea of changing the pickups in it. And it's something that I find I'm a little bit confused on because how do you evaluate, you know, what, what pickups to go with? Like I can go on the website of the company that I'm looking at and play samples, but like, I don't know what guitars those pickups are installed, installed into. I don't know what amps they're plugged into. How do you, like, what advice would you give to people maybe considering an upgrade? I have something I want to throw in there before you answer that, Joe, because I think this fits in with that perfectly. And I know that you know about this because you've, you've taught me about this personally. Um, so let's think about the guitar in general and how much tone com comes from each part of the guitar. Because yeah. I remember you telling me, and I didn't believe you at first, but now I'm a believer, <laughs> that the neck and how thick it is and the wood that the neck of your guitar is made out of is primarily uh, primarily holds most of what the tonal qualities are in the instrument. Did I say that correctly? And maybe want to talk about that a little bit before answering uh, Vadim's question. You said that absolutely correctly. And, and, and the question about pickups, and it, that, that's an awesome question. You know, and, and it's... Because you're right, there is, um, there's so many different options, which is a beautiful thing, but also it's very confusing at the same time. Um, you know, so the, the tonal quality of, um, and I, I think of like, you know, guitar players that will, um, and I, this happens a lot, where they'll take a, like a squire or something like that, and we... I, it will get completely hot rotted. It will go over and over new pickups, everything, everything about the guitar. And they'll go out and play um, gigs and people will be like, I can't believe you're doing that with the Squire. And they're like, yeah, I know. I'm just that good, you know, and I'm and in my mind, I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know, you have, you know, the best of the best that are is living inside that guitar, um, you know, so and that's a really important part of all of this is, you know, we definitely have um, access to some really great small builders and, and small makers and um, pickup guys that are just doing some phenomenal work. So you can kind of get lost in that and you can kind of lose your budget really fast, you know, very quickly on, on a set of pickups. And, and I understand all of that too. And, and so in, in that regard, it makes it difficult to answer your question about like the pickup ideas, because if you love how the guitar plays and you really love it, you know, you look at the guitar and you're like, man, that, that guitar speaks to me. That's, that's an instrument that, um, is doing what it should do. It's, you know, I, I pick it up, I want to play it, um, but it's missing something tonally. Um, 
you you just have to you just have to do some evaluation. So this is where I maybe let me let me expand on it because I can tell you exactly sure. what I what I don't love about it. When it when it's not plugged in, first of all, it it feels great, it stays in tune, and I love the sound of it actually when it's not plugged in. When it's plugged in, like if I were to just record the direct signal off of the guitar, it's too mid-rangey for me. There's too much of like 500 hertz honkiness that I'm always having to EQ out or deal with in my signal chain. So I want a pickup that's going to be kind of tighter and brighter and have less of that. Maybe I'm off though. Maybe it's not the pickup. So let me let me float that by you. You have the real ability there to describe in a very um, accurate way what you don't like about the pickup. The what what you said to me makes total sense. Okay. You know, and I do feel like it's a quality in the pickup okay. of a pickup swap that could you would very much appreciate. Cool. What's really cool is that the conversation that you just and the description that you just had with me is descriptions that players have all the time with these small makers mm. and they can really dial in something mm, that's cool. um that can really scoop out some of those mids if it, that's what it is or bring out the, the you know the low end you know so that's that's the beauty of our time is that you know we can we can work with guys that are you know very um accessible mm. and and willing and wanting to talk about these things would you recommend going directly to the, the, the pickup manufacturers or would you recommend working with somebody like yourself on, on those types of questions for a specific instrument? I would have those conversations with the maker. These guys, this is what they do. This is They want to talk about it. People think like, you know, it, that's an overwhelming process and I, I get that. But at the same time, it's kind of fun to explore different things, especially if you like the guitar. Right. Very cool. Uh, we did have maybe a couple other questions, if you have time for them, um, maybe talking more about sure. specifically what you do. And if, you know, somebody listening to this podcast, it really resonates with them getting into the world of guitar repair and maybe even being a luthier. Um, how would how would you recommend them going about that? There's a lot of really great schools, a lot of building schools. Brian Gallup has one up in Michigan. I think that's where Brian is now. It's a great school. Um, there's, there's a ton of them there, you know, they're in there. They're all have, um, I've heard really good things about a lot of them. So some of those programs are journeyman's programs where they're like eight weeks. Um, you know, some of those programs are two years. So depending on how far they want to get into it, I think the thing is though, is if you go that distance, you're probably going to have to, you're going to have to find yourself coming out of school and really doing some apprentice work. Uh, it's probably going to be in a, in some sort of city that's going to have a lot of players, you know, that's, that's really the number, one of the number one things is that, you know, you, you need to have a lot of musicians. So you have a lot of instruments to work on. I got involved with a music store. I had a lot of instruments all, all the time, you know, and I was working through things and, and if you don't know something, just stop uh, and ask somebody that may know. Um, because you know, repairmen that will talk about things or say things, or, or you know, you're, you're not going to know everything. So you don't want to like experiment on a customer's guitar because that's not going to go well. <laughs> Word travels fast, man. Your work is your business card, and I've always said that. You know, 
if I if I send out crap, then I'm going to get crap. Um, you know, so I, you know, my I don't really advertise. I don't, you know, I want um, my work to be my business card, and so um, that can be challenging because sometimes people are like, you know, hey, just you know, the fifty buck Chuck type deal. Let me just fix my guitar for fifty bucks. I don't care what it looks like. And I'm always like, but I do, because you're going to go out and say, hey, Westmoreland String Workshop did that. And um, they're going to be like, that guy's a hack, man. Like, what's he doing working on guitars? And so that's a challenge. You don't want to get at that level. You know, you can go to the um, YouTube Academy um, and find all <laughs> kinds of information there. Joe, where, where can people find you? I mean, as we're talking here, I'm... Uh... I'm Googling you, see how far away you are from my guitar, but uh, give people a way to get in touch with you if they're in the, uh, in, in the area. The name of um, my shop is Westmoreland String Workshop. Okay. Um, and the easiest way is weststringworkshop at gmail.com. Um, you know, and that, that will send an email. Um, I, I my shop is by appointment only. I'm a repairman, and and so um, I don't sell merchandise. I just I just repair. I have information on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. That's if you want to see um, some of my work. It's you know it's Westmoreland String Workshop. It's on Instagram. You can follow me and see some of the things that I've done. Well, Joe, it's been uh, a pleasure to have you on, man, and. Uh... Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge with us and and all the listeners that are going to listen to this podcast. Uh, so we're really we're really appreciative. Thank you. I appreciate you guys taking the time and inviting me on, and hopefully get to see you in the shop soon. Yeah, you definitely will because I'm sure a couple of my guitars they need some fret work done to them. So you're going to see I'm me sooner go than later. Frets right now. <laughs> yeah. We'll get you. We'll get you some converts <laughs> to the the religion of humidity. So that's that's going to be our goal. Yes. <laughs> Sounds good, Joe. All, All right. right. Thanks very much. Hey, you guys have a good night. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers, and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com, get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording, or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.